So, the Great Reset. You know, most of us have heard the term, and while most of us don't know exactly what the term means, we do know that, as a general rule, we don't like the people who keep talking about it. Now, at 7.48 a.m. on April 5th, 2022, the total U.S. national debt was, at that instant, $30,364,452,415,818. That means any child born to U.S. citizens at 7.48 a.m. on April 5th, 2022, enters the world owing $91,242. And if you're old enough or hardworking enough to be a taxpayer, then you owe, or owed, I should say, because the number keeps going up, it's higher now, $242,500 in order to zero the balance that has been run up on the credit card with your name on it to buy things that you don't own. And since the median income as of 7.48 a.m. on April 5th, 2022 was $35,786, that means that Mr. John Median Doe will have to take every dollar he earns, all of his rent, food, medical care, entertainment, transportation dollars, and all the rest, and pay every dollar he makes for 6.7 years just to square his own account, by which time, of course, he'll owe a lot more money. Now, regular people like you and I did not get us into this mess or any of the other messes for that matter. Now, that was done by a small number of very, very smart people. People much smarter than we are. You can just ask them. And these people are the same people talking about basic minimum living wages specifically, and the Great Reset in general. To unpack all of this will take more than one video, so to start, let's not talk about who these people are, let's talk about what they are. Now, of course, everybody knows that the word technocracy is not a new invention limited to tech giants, and they've known it for a long time. And by everybody, of course, I mean me, and for a long time, I mean a couple of weeks. You may be surprised to learn, I was anyway, that the word technocracy was first used by one William Henry Smythe, an engineer from, now imagine my shock and surprise, California. Smythe was one of those really, really smart people. The stupid people are named Smith. And he used the term technocracy way back in 1919, well before the information age, back in the days where if you told somebody you just Googled them, you'd probably get punched in the face and arrested for indecent exposure. Smythe described technocracy as, quote, the rule of the people made effective through the agency of their servants, the scientists and engineers, unquote. Now, the perceptive among you may notice that what Smythe was proposing was, quote, rule by scientists and engineers, and that by happy coincidence, William Henry Smythe happened to be a scientist and engineer. The basic idea of technocracy came down to this. It would mean a world where the Smythes and presumably the Whitehells would rule over the knuckle-dragging Smiths and the Whittles, as servants, of course, as, as rulers always are, servants. You know, the kind of servants that own and control things that their masters do not own and control, that kind of servant. Smythe believed that a technocracy would be a utopian society perfectly ordered by the very, very smart people and would therefore lack all of the confusion and waste and disorder generated by a constitutional republic. I mean, you can't just have everybody just kind of running around doing whatever they want to. That would be inefficient, you see. And resources, as the very, very smart people have been telling us for over a century, are about to run out any minute now. Now, one of the guys who was keen on this hip swinging new technocracy idea was Donald Stabile. 
Encyclopedia.com lists his many pedigrees, statistician for Standard & Poor's, a member of the National Association of Accountants, assistant professor of economics at St. Mary College, then associate professor, then professor, then head of department, then associate provost, then director for the Center of Economic Education, and also co-organizer of the Cremora Conferences on International Economics. That is a very, very smart guy. Now, Don's first, Don, you don't mind if I call you Don, do you? Don's first major work was published, appropriately enough, in 1984. And it was titled, Profits of Order, The Rise of the New Class, Technocracy, and Socialism in America. Now, who can spot the key word in that imaginatively repulsive title? Here's a hint, it's not order. And it's not technocracy. It's not even socialism. The word we're looking for is class. Many of us think that the chaos and disorder we're seeing out there is some kind of socialist revolution. I mean, it is, but that's only half right, and it's only half right twice. First of all, it's bigger than just socialism. The movement in question is called materialism, and I don't mean consumerism, the desire to own nice things. I mean materialism as the idea that everything in the world, including and especially people, can be ordered, quantified, directed, and molded. That's how socialism works, of course, but strictly speaking, you don't have to be a socialist to be a materialist. It's just the way to bet. And what's going on out there right in front of our eyes is not a revolution either. It's a counter-revolution. You see, the actual revolution was a historical hiccup, an anomaly, which began back in 1776 and threw a monkey wrench into a system that had been humming along since humans came down from the trees, and if National Geographic is any guide, probably way before that as well. This idea of letting everyone be free to do whatever they wanted to created enormous wealth, health, prosperity, and happiness for pretty much everybody who participated, but that's not what counts. What counts, you see, is that some people don't like the idea of everyone being wealthy, healthy, prosperous, and happy, because up until 1776, they were the only ones who had been wealthy, healthy, prosperous, and happy, and they didn't much like the idea of the Smiths being admitted to the club whose membership used to be restricted only to the Smites. So when you hear a very, very smart person talking about the wonders of the coming New World Order, what they're really talking about are the wonders of the coming Old World Order. And when you hear somebody speak about technocracy, just substitute the word aristocracy, and then all of a sudden, everything will make perfect sense. Aristocracy, the rule of a handful of people over everybody else, because they're better than we are. Now, they used to explain this tyranny as something called the divine right of kings, but the word king is somewhat out of fashion at the moment, probably because it's too on the nose. Perhaps we should call what they are saying and what we are seeing the divine right of nerds, geeks, and weenies, and that would be funny if it weren't so damnably, awfully true. So, what do these old world order techno-aristocrats really want, and how do they plan to get it? Well, let's start by looking at what they believe. Here are three examples, each in their own clinical, sterile, repulsive way. We'll start with a clip from a video produced by Google for their upper-level management. It's called The Selfish Ledger, and it lays it all out in the kind of calm, unemotional, desaturated, nihilistic, posh British accent that you might hear in an automated suicide booth. When we use contemporary technology, 
a trail of information is created in the form of data. When analysed, it describes our actions, decisions, preferences, movement and relationships. This codified version of who we are becomes ever more complex, developing, changing and deforming based on our actions. In this regard, this ledger of our data may be considered a Lamarckian epigenome, a constantly evolving representation of who we are. What if the ledger could be given a volition or purpose rather than simply acting as an historical reference? What if we focused on creating a richer ledger by introducing more sources of information? What if we thought of ourselves not as the owners of this information, but as custodians, transient carriers or caretakers? As an organisation, Google would be responsible for offering suitable targets for a user's ledger. Whilst the notion of a global good is problematic, topics would likely focus on health or environmental impact to reflect Google's values as an organisation. Once the user selects a volition for their ledger, every interaction may be compared to a series of parallel options. If one of these options allows the ledger to move closer to its goal, it will be offered up to the user. Over time, by selecting these options, the user's behaviour may be modified and the ledger moves closer to its target. Oh, that's charming, isn't it? Up next is someone who is so excited about what they plan to do that I don't think it ever occurs to her how deeply horrifying all of this really is. What I wanted to epitomize with the Internet of Bodies is this notion that we will be under assessment, we will be under measure of computation in every aspect of our lives in the future. From what you eat, who you date, what you buy on the Internet, um, how much energy you use, but also what are your vital signs? How well are you doing in terms of health? Uh, what kind of specific genetic quirks do you have? And finally, here's as succinct a view on materialistic thinking as we are likely to get from a very, very smart person who is auditioning for the role of social engineer. So I want to talk to you today about the future of our species and really the future of life. We are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Now, how exactly will the future masters of the planet look like? This will be decided by the people who own the data because we've reached the point when we can hack not just computers, we can hack human beings and other organisms. You need a lot of computing power and you need a lot of data, especially biometric data. Not data about what I buy or where I go, but data about what is happening inside my body and inside my brain. Organisms, whether viruses or bananas or humans, they are really just biochemical algorithms. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. Now, the first time I saw all three of these clips, I thought there was something not inhuman, but anti-human about them. It's such a reductionist, depressing view of the world. And then I realized why these people, 
want us to cover our faces and above all maintain social distancing. They do it because these people abhor person-to-person -person contact and not only because they can't control it. They hate the human connection because they don't have any human connections, not in the way that the rest of us do, which is why they want everything to be online, to be virtual. That very, very smart guy who we just listened to said that humans can be hacked, that free will is an illusion, that with enough data they can not only predict our actions, they can actually control them. Well, that guy believes what he's saying because his world is limited by the frame. This is the frame. Online as we are now, I control everything that's inside the frame. I control the lighting, I control the sound, and unlike in real life, if I make a mistake, I can just hit Control Z and do it all over, which I've already done several times in this very video without you even being aware of it. Technocrats hate and fear things like football games and backyard barbecues because those things occur outside the frame. The frame of a computer terminal, for them, is not only their interpreter of the mysterious world of human belief and emotion. Those computers are also, and much more importantly, reducers of the complexity of life beyond the world of computer science and technology. And they especially don't like surprises. Unpredictability really pisses them off. Now, I recently had the pleasure of meeting a really brilliant man and his really brilliant wife. He was one of the architects of the information age, but despite that, they both have souls. They told me stories about their son, whose name is not Adam, fully grown now and from early childhood, clearly an incredibly brilliant boy. His dad would give him a programming task and he'd see the code in his head and he'd write a new language if he needed to. He was that kind of brilliant. But all of those gifts came at a price for Adam, who, like many, if not virtually all of the technocrats, had a pretty severe case of Asperger's syndrome. Wikipedia describes it as, quote, a neurodevelopmental disorder characterized by significant difficulties in social interaction and nonverbal communication, along with restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior and interests. So, how do technocrats really see this world that we live in? Well, when Adam was a child, his parents made him sandwiches and then cut them diagonally, as all real Americans do. But one day, some relative made him a sandwich and cut it straight in half. And when Adam saw that sandwich, he started to cry. He didn't know what to do. Sandwiches are cut diagonally. This thing is cut in half and therefore is not a sandwich. Cutting a sandwich in half caused Adam's brilliant brain to crash. Now here's the really fascinating part. His parents, who were not only very smart but also very loving, knew that there was only one way to solve this problem. Let's say that the knot sandwich was made on a Friday. So Adam's parents told him that from now on, Friday was different day. Friday was the day where they did things differently, and that's why the sandwich was cut differently. Today was different day. And once Adam got that one additional line of code, Everything was just great, and the sandwich was a sandwich again, just a different kind of a sandwich. And when this neurological condition caused Adam to be unintentionally very rude to his friend Jason, his parents told him that this was not appropriate behavior. Once Adam got the instruction not to be rude to Jason, he stopped being rude to Jason. He was still rude to all the rest of his friends because he had been told not to be rude to Jason. You know, I heard these stories and I said to myself, my God, that is exactly how computer language works. And that's why people like Adam, people with Asperger's, are so astonishingly good with computers.
For example, a section of computer code could consist of 500 numbers separated by a colon, let's say. If number 433 is separated by a semicolon due to a simple typo, then that is not a sandwich and the computer will crash because computers, and to a large extent, the people that are so good with them, cannot extrapolate, which means that for them to be running smoothly, there cannot be any surprises. This is the face of someone with severe Asperger's syndrome who has no idea of in which direction the next sandwich is going to be cut. Turns out that real life is not so predictable even if you do own and control people's most personal data. So, how much more complex is real life outside the frame versus the virtual world inside the frame? Well, I used to be an editor for a movie talk show called Sunday Morning Shootout on AMC, hosted by Peter Bart and Peter Goober, both of whom, for reasons I cannot understand or explain, I liked very, very much. Peter Goober and his partner, John Peters, brokered the deal to sell Columbia Pictures to Sony back in 1989. Peter Goober told the story of how, during the negotiations to close the deal, he sat as a Hollywood producer in a Sony conference room, facing a long, long table of engineers and accountants and tech people, all of them in immaculate suits and ties. He was, in fact, at the very epicenter of the group of the really, really smart people that ran the top tech company in the world at the time. So Peter explained to these Sony executives how a movie studio works. We'll make 10 films a year, he said. That's what we call our slate. And out of that year's slate, three films will be big hits, four will more or less break even, and the final three will be flops. But we make more money on the hits than we lose on the flops, and that's how it works. And then the chairman of the board at Sony, a man who spent his entire life building radios and television, a very, very smart man, said to Goober, in all seriousness, why, why don't you just make the hits? What he couldn't understand, you see, was that a motion picture is infinitely more complex than a television set. Nobody makes flops on purpose. Everybody's trying to catch that lightning in the bottle. But the complexity of human emotions is so many orders of magnitude greater than that of a TV set that this incredibly successful engineer and brilliant man was absolutely baffled. Why not just make the hits? Gee, I guess I never thought of that. Now, if it turned out that these very, very smart people were correct, in other words, that a very small handful of experts could produce a happier and better ordered society, then their attempt to control the lives of every one of us would still be as immoral, but at least there'd be some kind of justification for it. But they're not correct, and in order to prove it, I'm going to need an ox. This man is Francis Galton, shown here in his prime. Galton was a British scientist, a very, very smart man. He was a statistician, a sociologist, a psychologist, an anthropologist, a tropical explorer, a geographer, inventor, meteorologist, psychometrician, and eugenicist. Now, back in 1906, just a few years before he died, Francis Galton set out to the West of England Fat Stock and Poultry Exhibition in his hometown of Plymouth, because this man's fascination in life was breeding. The idea that a species could be continually improved by the intervention of human expertise regarding the mating process. Much like Match.com today. Like most very, very smart people, Galton believed 
that there was only a small minority of the population capable of governance and all the rest of that untidy business, once saying, quote, the stupidity and wrongheadedness of many men and women being so great as to be scarcely credible. Galton went to the West of England fat stock and poultry exhibition in order to see the satisfying results of technocracy upon livestock, which were in fact very impressive. But while he was there, he stumbled onto something. It turned out that the West of England fat stock and poultry exhibition was having a raffle for sixpence, which is about 50 bucks today. You could buy a ticket in this raffle and the first prize was an ox or to be more precise, a slaughtered and dressed ox. But there it stood right there, there stood the ox. The person who came closest to guessing the weight of the ox would win many, 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 many take-home boxes of premium English ox. Now, being surrounded by the rabble, Galton decided to, one, amuse himself, and two, prove his theory that regular people were little more than blithering idiots. So once the results were in, he took a look at the 787 guesses and discovered what he expected to discover. That most of the guesses were way off, and some of them were just absurdly off. Presumably the experts, like ox breeders or butchers, had gotten pretty much close to the correct weight. But some of these guesses were so far out of the park that Galton surely must have thought that it was a wonder that these people could even dress themselves. But then, almost on a whim, the statistician in him decided to average the results. He took all of the guesses, including the wildest ones, added up the total ox poundage, divided it by the 787 entries, and came up with an average guess of the weight of that slaughtered and dressed ox. It turned out that the slaughtered and dressed weight of that English ox was 1,198 pounds. The average guess of the great unwashed came to 1,197 pounds, far closer to the actual weight of the ox than the winning individual entry. In other words, while none of the people in the crowd got the number correctly, the collective wisdom of the crowd absolutely nailed it. Galton later admitted that, quote, the result seems more credible to the trustworthiness of a democratic judgment than might have been suspected, unquote. You think? Okay, maybe that was a one-off. But in May of 1968, the American nuclear submarine USS Scorpion was shadowing a Soviet submarine off of the Azores Islands. On the 21st of May, USS Scorpion came up to periscope depth and made a radio transmission announcing that it was heading back on schedule to its home port in Norfolk, Virginia. But USS Scorpion never came home. The only other nuclear submarine lost by the U.S. Navy was USS Thresher back in 1963, but Thresher was conducting sea trials at the time and was literally directly underneath USS Skylark when she went down, so finding Thresher was not a problem. But the search area for the Scorpion could only be narrowed down to pretty much the widest part of the Atlantic Ocean. Where is USS Scorpion? It's resting out there on the bottom of the Atlantic someplace, and we have no idea where. Everybody in the Navy had a theory, and experts were duly consulted, and they offered their best estimates. But a U.S. Naval officer named John Craven decided to try something different. He gathered as diverse a group of people as he could find. Subskippers, oceanographers, salvage experts, mathematicians, meteorologists, probably fishermen too for that matter. He cast the widest net he possibly could. Every one of them independently came up with an answer, and everybody was wrong. But 
when Craven averaged the positions of each of the guesses, he got a location. How close to that average of the guesses was the wreckage of USS Scorpion when it was finally discovered? Well, given that they had a search area the size of the Atlantic Ocean, the collective guess was off of the actual location by a distance of 220 yards. This is also why the completely random and diverse members of an election result betting pool consistently return more accurate predictions than the very best efforts of the very best polling experts. In the hit TV game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, one of the four lifelines offered to contestants consists of calling the smartest person they know, and a second one consists of polling the audience. Statistical analysis shows that the experts were correct just under 65% of the time. The random audience on any given day was right 91% of the time. Time and time and time again, the collective wisdom of a group of people outperforms the best guesses of the best experts. Whether it's guessing the weight of an ox, or guessing the number of jelly beans in a jar, or guessing the location of a nuclear submarine, we find a mountain of astounding evidence that shows us that while none of us know the answer, all of us know the answer, and to a very high level of precision. Now, the very, very smart people that make up the technocracy know this, but they refuse to believe it. That's the aristocrat in them, you see? The very, very smart people have a burning desire to control regular people because they think they are very, very much smarter than all of us regular people are, but they're not. And the very, very smart people are far too stupid to realize this, and that's why we're in the trouble we're in today. We'll get into what a small group of technocrats have in store for us and how they intend to accomplish it on the next firewall made possible by the members at Bill Whittledon.